You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers. This is an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today we'll be discussing genomics, including defining terminology and types of tests that are available and examples of strategies to apply the findings from these tests to treating patients. I just want to take a moment to reflect toward the end of a long career, basically just how far we've come and really how exciting it's been that essentially for the first probably 40 years, 30 years of treating patients for this many years, it would be looking at morphology and what does cancer look like under the microscope and what's the immunohistochemistry and perhaps what are the cytogenetics and yet still wondering, you know, why did this person develop cancer? What triggered it? and what drives it, but really just to add what an exciting time it is. And with that in mind, how exciting it is and wonderful that we're being joined by Dr. Justin Watts, who's an Associate Professor of Medicine and the PAPCOR's Endowed Professor in Leukemia, the Division of Hematology at the University of Miami Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center in Miami. Justin, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Miller. A pleasure to be here. Justin, I want to start out by asking you for some definitions because there's a lot of information I think we're going to be talking about today. So here they are. I'm going to give you the key words, genetics, and I'll even put in there genomics. What do they mean and how are they the same or different? Sure. A simple but not straightforward question. So I'm not a geneticist. I'm a clinician, leukemia doctor. But to me, genetics is a broad term that, at least in this context, reflects the study of human DNA, not just the genes, but the chromatin and everything that goes with that. Genomics is a more specific term that applies to the application of these different tests to study and understand DNA and how it changes in it, such as mutations, affect patients, and what assays we use, such as next-generation sequencing to detect DNA, structural changes or variants, for example. And then there are other omics, such as transcriptomics, looking at RNA, proteomics, looking at the proteome, all the proteins in the cell, even metabolomics, looking at metabolism. So it's kind of like the study of, whereas genetics is a very broad term. How about germline mutations? That's a good question. So germline mutations, sometimes called constitutional, sometimes called familial or inherited, or mutations that you were born with, so that you've had all your life. Now, if they're truly a mutation that's pathogenic, many times those patients will develop cancers or some other abnormality early in life, but sometimes they are low penetrance and patients won't. The BRCA gene, for example, in breast cancer is a germline mutation. We don't always know when we do sequencing in a patient if the mutation is germline or not. It is suggestive if it's right at 50% variant allele frequency, but that's not 
diagnostic of a germline, you really have to, instead of just testing the bone marrow and blood cells, for example, in a patient with leukemia, you won't know if it's germline or somatic unless you also test another type of cell, such as a lymphocyte, which is not involved with the cancer, or even a skin fibroblast, which requires a skin biopsy is really the gold standard. On the flip side of that, somatic mutations are what we're usually talking about when we're talking about leukemias. Those are the acquired mutations that come up later in life. Usually you get one, then maybe you get another one a couple of years later and eventually develop MBS or leukemia when you hit a critical mass of number of mutations. Usually it's more than one required for overt disease. So I would love it if you could sort of give us an overview of your field, you know, in terms of what's available now, what would be considered state-of-the-art when patients are diagnosed with leukemia or myelodysplasia? Sure. So focusing on cancer genomics, specifically for acute leukemias and MDS, I think the most important tool that we have at our disposal is targeted next-generation sequencing, or NGS. And why this tool is so powerful is it really tells us every relevant, commonly mutated gene in myeloid blood cancers. It's usually a panel of about 50 to 100 genes. And this single assay looks at all of these genes at the same time. It looks at them relatively quickly, and it gives you the entire nucleotide sequence of those genes or parts of those genes if you're looking at hot spots. And so it really tells you everything you need to know about those gene mutations. And this has very important implications in terms of targeted therapies for these patients, as well as predicting prognosis and making transplant decisions. In addition to NGS, there are other modalities that are commonly used. For example, you might see qPCR or PCR testing. That's important for looking at single genes or gene fusions. It does have limitations, whereas you have to know what you're looking for to create a primer. So you can't detect novel variants and you can't look at too many genes at once. But it certainly has uses, for example, looking at BCR ABLE and CML, looking at pH-like fusions, for example, in ALL. And it can also detect very low levels of these gene mutations. For example, you can follow MRD with it, for example, in a core binding factor fusion, leukemia. There's also something called whole exome sequencing, which is more of a research approach currently where you sequence the entire exome. So every proton coding gene in a specific patient, that is a more costly and time-consuming approach. And to get good resolution, you have to have a lot of input, a lot of genomic DNA, because as a general rule, the more genes you're looking at, the lower the coverage of those genes to detect low-level mutations. But that approach can detect rare mutations and give you a sense of the total mutation burden in a patient, but more a research approach. And lastly, and you mentioned this as well, I do want to still touch on cytogenetics or mention it because it's still critical to have metaphase karyotyping and FISH in these patients, especially at diagnosis, because most of these targeted NGS panels are not going to give you chromosome gains or losses or structure abnormalities like translocations unless you're doing whole exome or RNA sequencing, which are not standard approaches really commercially right now or for general patient care. So what would you say would be, you know, and sort of, again, the standard of care for patients with these diseases? 
Yeah, great question. Let me clarify a little bit. So in a newly diagnosed AML or MDS patient, the standard of care set of tests would be cytogenetics, keratyping, and in most cases also FISH at diagnosis. There are some caveats there. But cytogenetics and targeted next generation sequencing for myeloid gene panel. Whole exome is more of a research test. PCR has more niche indications, for example, to follow MRD or to look at some gene fusions that may be missed by fish, such as pH like ALL, and to follow some things like B cerebral and CML or PML R alpha and APL, kind of those monogenetic diseases. All right, so let me ask you what are some of the differences between fish and PCR? So, for example, when a patient has CML, we have a choice. We could ask for a fish. We could ask for a PCR. Tell us more, if you would. Well, there are two ways to do the same thing, really. Fish and qPCR for BCR-ABL are both probes to detect the translocation. Fish is not nearly as sensitive, so it may be used at diagnosis, where you don't need sensitivity because it's going to be highly expressed. But after you start treating the patient their b cerebral transcript level is going to, in most cases, be driven down to a very low level, one in 10,000 cells, even one in 100,000 cells. And you really need PCR to detect that low level of remission or those deep major molecular or complete molecular remissions, which we want to get patients to. This is just going to be negative if they're 0.1%, but the PCR will be positive, and we really want it less than 0.1% in CML. Right. Are there patients where you do all of these things? Again, someone presents, we'll go back to AML or myelodysplasia, but, you know, uh, it's clear the patient has one of these two diagnoses, and you do cytogenetics, and it's normal, and you do FISH, and it's normal. Are there patients where you just don't see anything? There aren't many patients that are negative for everything. It does happen. Having a normal carrier type in AML, for example, is fairly common. It's about half of patients, 40 to 50% of patients. But most of those patients, I would say more than 90% of normal karyotype or normal chromosomes patients um, are going to have a mutation detected on an NGS myeloid panel. If you did whole exome on those patients, theoretically, you would find something because this is a clonal disease driven by uh, genetic mutations. Your thoughts on it for a small group of patients, are these epigenetic rather than structural? That's a great question. Epigenetics is a rapidly evolving field, and there are a lot of implications in myeloid malignancies, really for two reasons. One, there are genetic gene mutations in the different enzymes that control the epigenetic modifications in, gosh, probably a third, if not half of AMLs. And even when there's no quote-unquote epigenetic modifier that's genetically mutated, so an abnormal protein or a loss of a protein or gain of function, there's still epigenetic deregulation in those cells. For example, too much methylation too many methyl marks on the DNA at the promoters, which prevent genes from being transcribed, for example. And that's how the hypomethylating agents work, is to kind of reverse that aberrant methylation. So it's a complicated question. We don't do a lot of epigenetic testing in terms of methylation or other epigenetic changes 
as standard of care right now in patients, but that's done at a research level, certainly. Please say more about the following. I thought this was fascinating. So you're saying that the genes that are responsible, for the proteins that are responsible for methylating genes, there may be uh, abnormalities, structural abnormalities in the genes for those. Yeah, exactly. And so, for example, uh, a TET2 mutation, those are usually loss of function mutations where you lose function of that TET2, which is very important for removing methyl marks. So then there's too many methyl marks, too much methylation on gene promoters or enhancers and so on, and that turns them off basically. And so you may not be transcribing then key tumor suppressor genes or so on, and that leads to disease. So it actually does start in many cases with an actual genetic abnormality in an epigenetic protein that then can't work right. For example, TET2. Another example are IDH mutations. Now, this is a little bit of a link between metabolism and epigenetics. IDH is part of the Krebs cycle, isocitrate dehydrogenase. When it's mutated in AML, it's actually a neomorphic gain of function. Well, not really gain, but it's new function of the protein. The protein is still transcribed, but it has aberrant function, and it makes a different metabolite out of the Krebs cycle called 2-hydroxyglutarate when it's mutated. And that then goes and inhibits TET2, so it can't work. So it basically has the same phenotype as a TET2 mutation, these IDH mutations. The difference being that is targetable because those are abnormal but functional proteins being developed and we could specifically target that mutated protein with an IDH inhibitor. It's much harder to target TET2 because it's loss of function. So you can't inhibit it. It's much harder to restore function than to inhibit function in pharmacology. So I have to say it's been fascinating listening to this discussion and being part of it because it sounds like sort of various levels of uh, abnormalities that you can have may be leading to the same diseases. I want to ask you again, almost a higher level, the 60,000 foot level, but when we get reports listing mutations, how do you tell? And then how can we as clinicians tell, are they drivers or not? What features do you look for that tell you that this is a relevant change? And, and then is it targetable? Yeah, that's a great question. In general, the reports themselves will give some clinical context for each mutation, but it really does have to be interpreted by an expert, a hematologist who sees these cancers or blood cancers all the time because there are a lot of subtleties. The report will usually say if it's a known pathogenic variant, meaning this is a mutation that we know from prior studies is recurrently mutated in AML or MDS, such as FLT3, FLT3, or MPM1, or IDH1 or 2, or P53. So those are known. Now, sometimes when you're doing next-gen sequencing, you're sequencing in many cases the whole gene or key parts of the gene, this or that axon that are known to be mutated recurrently in these diseases. But you may pick up benign variants. You may pick up variants of uncertain significance or even germline polymorphisms that may not be pathogenic. So the report may tell you that, but it may also have to be interpreted by a hematologist. The variant allele frequency also sometimes matters. How many of the cells in that patient carry that mutation if it's very low level? 
It may not be as significant. Higher is usually worse. And that can also give you some sense about the sequence in which the gene mutations were acquired. So that's all important. In terms of targetable mutations, we basically know what those are, the druggable ones, the ones that have approved targeted agents for specific gene mutations include FLT3, ITD or TKD mutation, usually it's the ITD, and IDH1 and IDH2. Those three genes are all targetable in AML and have approved drugs, which we can get into more if you want to. P53 is another example of a gene that we're starting to target in clinical trials with a drug called APR246, for example, another drug called magrolimab with azacitidine really seems to synergize against P53, even though it's not directly targeting it. So those are a couple of examples. Now, we also use these gene mutations to predict a patient's prognosis in all of these diseases. And that's really helped refine how we decide who gets what therapy, how intense it to be, does the patient get a transplant or not, beyond just cytogenetics, which is what we used to use. Can you share an example of that where having that information would change the transplant decisions and the treatment decisions? For sure. In just taking AML, a younger patient with AML, older adults is a bit of a different ballgame, but a lot of advances being made there as well. But the classic case of a younger patient with AML, we used to divide them into favorable, intermediate, and high or poor risk based on just cytogenetics. If they had a core binding factor fusion, they were favorable. For example, a normal karyotype or trisomy 8 was intermediate. And then complex cytogenetics and certain rearrangements or translocations like MLL or inversion 3 and so on were poor risk. Now we also layer NGS or next generation sequencing for specific mutations into that. As an example, if you have a core binding factor 821 translocation, you think that's great, the patient doesn't need transplant, they can be cured with chemo, induction, and HIDAC consolidation. But if they have a kit mutation in C-kit, which about 20 or 30% of them will have, especially if it's at a high level, but really if they have it, period, they do much more poorly, and we think those patients need a transplant. So that totally changes the patient's treatment and prognosis. So you have to have that NGS done at diagnosis in any AML or MDS patient. Another example, if you have a normal carrier type, used to we would transplant those patients because we weren't sure. Now we know, and this has been known for a while, if they have an NPM1 mutation and they're FLT3 negative or low level maybe, then they probably don't need transplant. If they have a biallelic CDP alpha mutation, meaning both alleles are mutated, those patients do very well with chemo alone and they don't need transplant. On the flip side, if a patient has an ASXO1 or RUNX1 mutation, or P53, which we know is bad. Those patients now move to the adverse risk category, even if they have normal cytogenetics, for example. So it really has changed how we decide, or it's augmented how we decide who to transplant in AML. That's very helpful, thank you. So, all right, I'm gonna present you a, this is literally from this morning. I'm more interested in how to think through it. I saw a woman today who is 70, she's pancytopenic, we have done bone marrows that's somewhat hypocellular. Uh, cytogenetics are negative. And the only abnormality that I've gotten back from the lab so far was there was trisomy 8. However, it was only in about 7% of the cells. 
and the cytogenetics lab was saying normal people without a disease could have up to 6% and no dysplastic changes. So again, I'd love your thoughts on how do I as a clinician, how do we as clinicians integrate all that information? Remind me, did she have pancytopenia, you said? So she does have low blood counts? Correct, yeah. But no dysplasia. So she doesn't quite meet a definitive diagnosis of MDS if there's not dysplasia, but we're suspicious in this case that she may have some early MDS developing or maybe something called cecus or clonal cytopenias of uncertain significance. When a patient has one or more low blood counts, and they have a detectable clonal abnormality, in this case, a low-level trisomy 8, which may be an evolving clone, but just at a low level, that hasn't yet manifested into overt dysplasia or increased blast to give you diagnosis of MDS. I think doing next-generation sequence in this patient may also be helpful to see if she has any underlying mutations. And this is someone, which she might, in addition to the trisomy 8, that I would you know, depending on how bad the cytopenias are, probably just observe her and follow her closely over time for any signs of progression. These patients are at risk for developing full-blown MDS or AML, but it can be indolent and it can take a lot of time. There are some patients that don't even have cytopenias, but we pick up usually mutations more than chromosome changes on NGS panels done for whatever reason, if they're done for another cancer maybe or something. Um, and that's called CHIP, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. We're also learning a lot more about that. And those patients can go on to get MDS. So they have a TET2 mutation or a DNA2-3A mutation. But maybe more importantly than that, we're discovering that having these mutations in your white blood cells, even when you don't have overt disease, puts you at risk of other problems, such as cardiovascular disease and things like that. And these CHIP abnormalities are also common after treatment for solid tumors. So should we be, even be screening patients for those abnormalities, high-risk ones, um, is an important research question that we're trying to answer. Very interesting. I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the future of genomic testing in heme malignancies? Well, I think we've made so much progress. In some ways, it seems that the future is already here, but you know, we're certainly going to be improving and evolving. I think one thing I haven't mentioned yet is turnaround time. So some of these mutations, especially in AML, you really need in a couple of days. There's about four or five or six of them that may affect how you initially treat the patient. And we know time to induction or time to treatment in these patients is important. FLT3, for example, MPM1, P53, IDH, perhaps. So we need rapid panels, and we're doing that now for a key set of genes that are actionable early, and then we need the rest of them to come back to eventually make the decision regarding overall prognosis and transplant after they've been either induced or received whatever their frontline therapy is going to be, maybe venetoclax, azacitidine in an older patient. But we need rapid panels. That is a barrier at some places, um, having to wait for the mutations to come back. In the case of FLT3, we don't start the FLT3 inhibitor myostart until day eight of induction, so you do have a little bit of time. But sometimes having this or that mutation really changes the treatment from day one. So we need to know that. And then, you know, you can imagine a future where we're going to really be in this multi-omics approach for all patients, where every patient has whole exome sequencing, for example, to detect rare mutations that you would otherwise miss. RNA sequencing gives you the transcribed RNA. 
So that tells you a lot about gene expression, how much of a gene is being expressed, at least at the transcriptional level. Is it overexpressed? And it tells you also about gene fusions, fusion transcripts, offering more information. And lastly, single cell sequencing is one of the most recent advances where we can look at the mutations at the single cell level. And that tells us a lot about clonality or clonal hierarchy, which mutations came first, and most patients had four or five. What was the sequence they were acquired in? Which ones are subclonal? What's the ancestral clone? And that may actually be important as well, maybe even more so than each specific mutation in terms of prognosis, and also in terms of are patients going to respond to targeted therapies. So it's not just the single mutations, it's the combination of mutations, and it may be the sequence in which they were acquired that affects how a patient's going to do and the biology of their leukemia. So by the way, as I'm listening, I'm sort of shaking my head with amazement and disbelief too, but the idea of really single cell is pretty amazing. What are some important points in educating patients on the meaning of these tests? I think probably the most important thing is to talk to your hematologist or your oncologist specialist about what they mean. And if you have access to the reports, you know, just looking at it yourself and Googling things, you know, you really have to talk to your doctor about what it means because there are some nuances. And also for more complex cases, really being referred, I think, to a tertiary referral center, NCI designated cancer center, to really see an expert, even if it's just for an opinion, is I think critically important because these are relatively rare and complicated and potentially devastating diseases that can be tricky to manage and interpret all this data that we now get uh, when a patient has a bone marrow biopsy. And there are other resources for providers and patients, I'm sure through LLS and the different societies that can explain some of this, the genomics and so on, but really it needs to be a conversation with your doctor. Finally, I wanted to ask you, any resources you'd recommend for either healthcare providers or patients? Well, for patients, of course, as I mentioned, your primary hematologist and potentially getting a second opinion at a cancer center with a disease expert that only does leukemia or only does MDS is critically important. Now, for patients and for healthcare providers who may not be hematologists, LLS, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, and other societies have a wealth of information at their disposal, such as this podcast, to help with understanding some of the complex topics like genomics that now are really becoming an everyday part of cancer care. Very good. So again, this is Dr. Ken Miller. I'm an oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I have to say this has been a great episode today in giving, I mean, at least me personally, and I hope you as well, sort of a broader understanding and a detailed understanding at the same time about genomics and proteomics and prognosis and treatment. So again, we're joined by Dr. Justin Watts, who's an associate professor of medicine and the PAPCORS endowed professor in leukemia. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Had a lot of fun. Me too. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this uh, wonderful episode, LLS. I want to share with you now offers a series of interactive webinars entitled Genomics Essentials and Hematologic Malignancies. For this program and for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org/ce.
And for any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one -on -one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And finally, I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcasts by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.